Hey, if you've got a Bible, would you grab it and turn with me to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 13. That's a text we're going to be using today as we continue our series on the art of neighboring. So let me just recap as you're turning to Mark chapter 13. Uh, what we looked at last week, we're doing this short little series called The Art of Neighboring. We, we looked at what if Jesus' command to love your neighbor as yourself, what if we took that literally? Like the people that actually lived around us. And, and if you didn't get one of these, hopefully you got one of these, this little magnet. We say, we're saying, do we even know our neighbor's names? Because it's hard to love people if we don't know their names, right? So our coworkers, our friends, our classmates, our baristas, our CrossFit brosifs, they are all our neighbors. I think, I think the parable of the Good Samaritan teaches that. They're neighbors, but this series is specifically focused on our literal neighbors because, as we looked at last week, our tendency is to want to redefine neighbor so that we can find loopholes, so that we can justify ourselves. That is what the lawyer in the passage was doing last week. That is what we all tend to do. And I think one of the ways we've done that is we've said, well, I've got so many relationships, so many people, I'm not actually called to my literal neighbors. I'm not sure that's true because I believe that God, in His infinite wisdom, has not made an accident putting you in the apartment or the neighborhood, the cul-de-sac, I know there's not a lot of those in, in Seattle, that you are in. And so what would it look like to take this first step of, of literally learning our neighbor's names, writing them on our magnet, and making sure if we have them over, we put the magnet away, <laughs> okay? <laughs> what would it look like? What would naturally and organ organically happen if we just take that first small step? And I, and I thought of that uh, this, this weekend. Uh, sometimes it feels like, oh, this is such a simple thing. I'm called to so much more. But I think if we miss this first step, it will just hamstring us for all the other steps that are to come. I had a good friend of mine that I played basketball with all through high school, starting in the sixth grade, and his dad was a coach. And so his dad would not let him. His dad was old school like actually old school. He was very old, like 15, 20 years older than all the other dads. But he had a great jump shot, and he would teach his son the right way to shoot. But the problem was his son wasn't strong enough to shoot the right way. And so it was so sad because as all of us gunslingers were out there shooting from the hip with terrible form and making three-pointers, poor old Scott Hall was sitting just in the key shooting with perfect technique. And he said, Dad, can I move out? And the dad says, only if you can do it the right way. And I thought, that's a perfect analogy for this. Let's just start with the basics. Get good form. Learn how to be a good neighbor to the eight people around us before we just start slinging threes. We just start trying to fix all the problems of our city, all the problems of our world, and we can't even love our neighbors well. Well, the great end to the story is that Scott Hall became the best shooter on our high school team. Because for all those years, when all the other kids were learning terrible techniques, Scott was doing it the right way, in close. And then he got stronger, and he got stronger, and he became the best shooter on the team. So, 
Maybe if we just start with the basics, we go step by step, we learn to neighbor well around us, we learn our neighbor's names, maybe, just maybe, we might actually start to do the thing that Jesus said was the greatest thing we could do. So, that's where we're headed, and and today what I want to look at is a vital aspect of actually learning to have success in these basics. And that is motivation. Our motives matter. Our motives will shape how we neighbor. For better or for worse. I was actually listening to this podcast called Invisibilia. Does anybody, anybody listen to that podcast? It talks about these invisible forces that shape our world. And... I was listening to this last week, and they were investigating um, this sort of common misconception in our country, which is that America has become so much more dangerous. So much more dangerous. And, And is that true? Because we sure act like it. We sure act as though it's more dangerous. And so uh, there was a, a researcher who, in the 1970s, went to the small town in Vermont, and he began to study uh, the movements and patterns of children. It's kind of creepy. He would sit in bushes and watch the way these children would just naturally interact. And in the 1970s, what he found, as he studied all these children from this, this uh, small suburb in Vermont, is he found that children were given permission to sort of run wild up to a five-mile radius from their home in the 1970s. Well, this researcher went back to the same town in the 2000s, and he talked to those same kids who were now parents. And do you know what the radius was for their kids? The end of the block. That is the furthest that parents would let their kids go unsupervised. And so obviously, uh, logic would tell you that the reason that this is is because, well, it's just a much more dangerous town. Well, the problem is is that crime statistics are pretty much exactly the same as they were in the 1970s. So what has happened? What has happened? And so the podcast goes and investigates this, and it's quite interesting if you wanted to listen to it. I can't do it justice, but uh, I'll try to just say a few things. What happened? Well, I think what happened is that our brains actually changed, and the reason that our brains changed is because we are overstimulated. You see, there's this thing called fear that is rightly triggered when we are in danger, And it actually is quite helpful. It's not a bad thing. It helps us. It protects us. It helps us to survive and to thrive. But over the last three or four decades, this fear mechanism has been overstimulated. The evening news, the invention of the news channel who has to fill 24 hours of things to say, the instant dissemination of the craziest, worst, most terrifying stories out there. All of this has continued to set off our fear mechanism. And we have become hypersensitized to fear. Our muscles have learned to trigger at everything 
I might even suggest today that these muscles that we have have been overworked, and so they tend to freak out. Now, why am I bringing this up? I'm actually not talking about fear tonight. I'm actually going to talk about that next week. But I think there's another muscle that's also been overworked over the last 30, 40 years. And it's our suspicion muscle. I think, particularly in the generation in which most of us find ourselves, we have been overstimulated. We have overworked those muscles which see the worst in people, which are suspicious of everyone, which are weary of everyone's motivations. We tend to expect the worst. And our greatest fear is being duped, being deceived, being tricked, hoodwinked, swindled, crossed, conned, diddled, shafted, rooked, suckered, snookied. Dare I say catfished. That's our greatest fear. That's one of my greatest fears. Maybe it's because we've seen too many movies like Mission Impossible, Ocean's Eleven, Twelve, Thirteen, Fourteen. I don't know. How many are there? So we've become hypervigilant to not have the wool pulled over our eyes. Is this sounding familiar? We are the generation who was taught by our parents not to answer the phone if you don't know the number because it's probably a telemarketer. And they're probably selling us something that we don't need. And we're the generation who's been taught not to open the door to a stranger. Not because they're dangerous, but because they're probably selling us something or some belief, and we don't want anything to do with it. Advertising. It's not possible, really, to, to come to an exact number on how many ads the average person sees in a day. But some have speculated and done some research and say that in 1970, the average person saw 500 ads a day. And in 2017, the number is 5,000 a day. So what do you think the result is? Everything that we hear, see, smell, must be an advertisement until proven authentic. You feel that way? I know I do. I am so skeptical of people and their motives. I'm hypersensitive, and I think our culture is hypersensitive to people's motives. We're all badge-carrying, trained-to-kill officers of the motive police. It's my job to sniff out a bad motive and expose it. That's my job. Who's going to do it if I don't do it? So this world we live in, here's what I want to tell you today. It's not going to change. You're not going to change this about people. People will continue to be more and more and more cynical with regard to your motive and my motive. And so I'm not going to tell you how to change that. I'm just going to say we then have to be very, very aware of our own motives and learn to live and neighbor well with the right motives if we are ever going to accomplish this great command, which is to love our neighbor as ourselves.
Motives matter. Motives need adjusting. Motives deserve our attention, particularly when they come to ourselves. Now let me press pause here for a second and make a quick side note, because I think this is very important, because I've just said we are probably just like the rest of the world in this room, highly skeptical, highly suspicious people. Here's what I want to ask you. What is your motivation for being suspicious? I am a middle child. I have an older sister and a younger sister. And I was right in the middle. Guess what that means? Nobody paid much attention to me. That's supposed to be funny. <laughs> but it's sad. <laughs> but it's also sad. Are there any middle, middle children in the room? Raise your hand. You are my people. Talk to me. But you know what I think happened being sandwiched between two sisters? Is that I became an observer. And I learned to watch people. And I, I learned to watch the way my sisters would interact with my parents in particular. And uh, you know what? I think I got pretty good in 18 years of watching this, uh, of seeing how a pre-adolescent, adolescent female works out their motivations in the world. Something of an expert. I became a great observer of things and people. If I've ever told you, did you get a haircut? This is why. I am very observant. It's a gift. I watched, I studied, <laughs> the manipulations and motivations of my sisters, and they're actually very different people. They had different schemes, but, but, but I could see through it all, and I could see they had very similar motivations. And um, I was perfect, of course, uh, but I saw them, and I think this actually made me an even more suspicious person than I would have just naturally been growing up in the culture that we live in uh, because of this sandwich situation. And so, I am myself an incredibly suspicious person. And I've had to work really, really hard at not living into this natural tendency to always expect the worst, to always have my, pardon my French, my BS sensor trip. I had to learn to give people the benefit of the doubt. Even when that seemed to my natural mind, to be foolish. And may maybe you're in that boat. That's why I'm bringing this up. Maybe you tend to always be suspicious of people. And, and it might seem to you to be dangerous to give people the benefit of the doubt, or stupid, or illogical. But I believe, and I've found it to be true in my own life as I've matured in my walk with Jesus, is that I must choose to trust people even though time and time again it's bitten me in the behind. But I think it's the right choice. I think it's the choice Jesus made again and again. Even with Judas, he made the decision to trust. Even the best people in the world don't have perfect motives. Even the best people don't have an awareness of their motives. Even those with pretty good motives struggle at doing things exactly the way God would want them to do. And so we must learn to trust people 
give them the benefit of the doubt, forgive them when maybe they do a good thing for the wrong reason. It doesn't mean that we let ourselves be taken advantage of. It just means that we choose out of love for people to try to see them like God sees them. To try to see the best in them. To try to see what, what might be the pure and good motivation behind their actions and their words, even when it hurts. Unpause. Maybe that's helpful for you. Maybe it's not. So now let's look at Mark. It's actually chapter 12. Mark chapter 12, which is a reiteration of the great commandment that Jesus gives to us. So I want to read this together. If you want to follow along, Mark chapter 12, verse 28. starts like this. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another. And seeing that he answered them well, asked him, that's Jesus, asked Jesus, which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, The most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And the second is this, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to Jesus, You are right, teacher. You have truly said, that He is one, and there is no other besides Him. And to love Him with all your heart, with all your understanding, and with all your strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than the whole burnt offerings and sacrifice. And when Jesus saw that He answered wisely, He said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask Jesus any more questions. Interesting. <laughs> that very last line is, is quite interesting. Why did no one dare to ask him any questions? I, be, I believe it's because they realized that this standard which Jesus was calling them to, this one in which you actually love your neighbor as yourself, just let that sink in, to love your neighbor as yourself, not even as a family member or as a friend, but as much as you love yourself and in the way that you love yourself, this is an incredible, incredible command. And it's incredibly difficult to live out. And so they dared not ask him any more questions because what else might he ask them to do? This seems too much. Now let me read you another passage. You don't need to turn there. You've probably heard this. This is Matthew 28. This is the Great Commission. Okay, you have the Great Commandment, then you have the Great Commission. The Great Commission goes something like this. This was after Jesus' death, His resurrection, and now He's about to ascend to sit at the right hand of God in the intermediate heaven. Verse 16 says this, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee to a mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw Him, they worshipped Him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you to the end of the age. So we've got the great commandment and the great commission. 
Which of these takes precedence? I'm not going to give you the answer. I'm going to just keep talking. So one thing to realize, or one thing that I've been realizing a lot lately, is that I need to take a long look at my motives. And so here's two questions I've been asking of my motives. The first is, is a, a revelation question. How often do I make decisions without considering my motives? How often do I make decisions without even considering my motives? And the second is related. Why am I not more in touch with where my motives lie? Motives matter. And in, interesting, interestingly enough, God thinks they matter too. In Proverbs 16, it says this, People may be pure in their own eyes, but the Lord examines their motives. Jeremiah 17 says something similar. But I, the Lord, search all hearts and examine secret motives. I give all people their due rewards according to what their actions deserve. So God cares about our motives. We should care about them too. And in understanding our motives and getting in touch with our motives, I think one of the things that we have to do is we have to distinguish between what type of motive? There, there are two types of motives. There are ulterior motives, it's with a U, ulterior motives, and ultimate motives. An ulterior motive is, is this. Ulterior means something that is intentionally kept concealed. An ulterior motive is usually manipulative. It's, it's one that we do or say one thing in the open, but intend or mean another thing in private. That's an ulterior motive. An ultimate motive sounds something like this. Ultimate means the furthest point of a journey. An ultimate goal is an eventual point or a long destination. Okay, so let me give you some examples of just how to distinguish these. If, as a young boy, I started playing basketball with dreams of one day playing in the NBA, that is an ultimate motive. Okay? Even if it's a Foolish motive, okay? It's an ultimate motive. I was so close. I was so close. If, on the other hand, in high school I had joined the cheerleading team, saying that I loved cheerleading. Now, this is actually partly true. I loved to sit in the stands and cheer when I wasn't playing. I loved, I loved cheerleading to an extent, but that isn't the reason I joined the cheerleading team. The actual reason is that there was a girl on the cheerleading team that I wanted to date. That is me acting upon an ulterior motive. Clear enough? <laughs> it's not always so simple to see. I didn't actually join the cheerleading team. I got cut. No, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't try out. But I think I would have been pretty good. So ulterior motives are not, in essence, evil. They're not necessarily evil, but they are always, in part, deceptive. Okay? And as God's people, we obviously do not want to have a reputation of being deceptive. Unfortunately, that's often what most people think of Christians. Maybe you do not consider yourself a Christian, and you're in the room right now, and you're saying in your head, bingo, finally somebody admits it. Christians are deceptive. 
if, if you're in the room now and that's how you feel, let me just apologize. I'm sorry that we have perpetuated this stereotype. Most of the Christians I know aren't doing this intentionally. They're doing it because they don't recognize the difference between an ulterior and an ultimate motive. They're actually acting, speaking out of love, even though in some situations, maybe even in many, it's done with an ulterior motive. I know this because that's been me at times. I have done good things, loving things, but I've done them out of order. So something done with an ulterior motive is not necessarily unloving or untruthful or unhelpful, but it usually means that it's inauthentic. And being inauthentic is the cardinal sin for millennials. So if you, if you are a millennial, if you know millennials, that is the one thing you want to avoid, is being inauthentic. So let's look at good and bad motives for neighboring. A bad or ulterior motive might sound something like this. I want to neighbor well so that I can convert my neighbors to Christianity. Again, see how easily this can become a motive. Because that's the great commission. We are to make disciples of all nations and all peoples. Jesus told us to do that. How can that be wrong? It's not wrong. It's just incomplete. So we don't want to neighbor well because we want to convert our neighbor, but because we are converted. That might seem like semantics, but it's not. This kind of love, which is unconditional in nature, is actually the love that we learn only because of the way God loved us. So when we actually receive gospel love, which is undeserved, unwarranted, we did nothing to receive it, when we realize that Christ died on the cross for us long before we ever responded to Him, when we understand and accept that kind of love, then we begin to see why we are to love our neighbor as ourself. Because that's exactly the way God loved us. So once we are truly converted, our heart is changed. Our understanding of love is converted. Then we can actually begin to love our neighbor well. This is sacrificial love, and it's very rare. It's very rare. Let me give you an illustration of this. I love the movies. I love to take my wife to a movie. I'm taking her to one tomorrow night, and it's ruining tomorrow night, in a sense, for me already because of what I'm about to share. Now, she is not here tonight. She's working, so I might be able to get away with it. But I love to take my wife to the movies, and typically 
the way this works is I take her to a movie, but I have an ulterior motive, which is I have a movie that I really want to see. And I usually do a pretty good sales job. You're going to love this movie. It's got love in it and people and... It's a lot like those romantic comedies that you love so much. And it ends, you know, it's probably, that's not true. I know that she's probably not going to love the movie. But I really want to see this movie. And I want to love my wife and take her on a date. See, see, it's not terrible. It's not the worst thing. It's not like going to the movie by myself, which I've done. But it's not as pure as it could be. Now, there's other times where I say, Allie, I want to take you out to a movie. And here's the deal. You pick whatever movie you want. And every time I say that, I cringe. (laughs) Because I know I've been to that movie two or three hundred (laughs) times. It's pretty much the same movie, just with different actors, slightly different cinematography, but the same plot line. But you know what? That's loving my wife as the ultimate motive, not with some ulterior motive to get to see a great movie that I've been wanting to see. Another way that you could, you could talk about this in a, in a more general sense is how many of the relationships do you have in your life that are not affinity-based? Here's what I mean by affinity-based. That you're in the relationship because you and the other person or you and the group of persons share the same loves. You share the love for great movies. You share the love for great coffee, great beer, bicycling. That's not bad to be in those kinds of relationships. But at some level... They are slightly different, and there is some ulterior motive in you wanting to be a part of those relationships. They are affinity-based. People that look like me, smell like me, sound like me, desire like me, think like me. Let's all get together and be neighbors to one another. But here's the challenge and the beauty of Jesus' command. Neighboring, literal neighboring, is not affinity-based. Because there are people all around you where you live that do not sound like you, smell like you, dress like you, love like you, believe like you. There are going to be people that are very different. And so this kind of love is proximity-based. And the only way that we'll actually love those neighbors well is if we learn to love like Jesus loved. Jesus didn't come and love us because we looked like him, smelled like him, sounded like him, thought like him. We couldn't be more different than him. And he decided to come close to us and sacrifice for us because he loved us. That is why the real lab for New Testament neighboring is not the church. It's not the fellowship group. It's the neighborhood. These are the people that you didn't get to pick. These are the people that just were there and you're called to love. So the only way you'll do that 
The only way you'll fulfill Jesus' command is if your motivation is not to convert them, but because you're converted by the love of Jesus. Now having said that, wanting your neighbors to come to know, to love, to worship Jesus is not a bad motive. In fact, I believe that the decision you make of whether to follow or not follow Jesus is the most important decision that you'll ever make. It's the most important decision that your neighbors will ever make. And so it's vitally important to think about that, to care about that, to want to represent Jesus well. But it just shouldn't be the primary motive for loving your neighbor. See, the art of neighboring is not an evangelism project. It's a discipline. The ultimate motive is that all peoples would come to know and worship Jesus as their Lord and Savior. That is actually a very good ultimate motive. But just not in the discipline of neighboring. Because if we walk into relationships with our neighbors and all we're thinking about is when will they start to worship and love Jesus? When is this going to happen? Why isn't this happening yet? We will actually look past them instead of actually seeing them where they're at. Now we should hope and pray that all peoples, all neighbors, would love and worship Jesus because it is for their good and it is for His glory. But we must neighbor because neighboring well, loving our neighbors well, is actually good in and of itself. Even if they never come to know Jesus as Lord. That is hard for me to say because I care so much about people worshiping Jesus. But I have to come to the realization that loving my neighbor well is worth it in and of itself. So, do you believe that? You're able to wrestle with your motives and love your neighbor well because God's asked you to do that? Now having said all that, let me give you an actual good ultimate motive because I don't, I don't want to confuse us. This is actually a good ultimate motive. It might sound something like this. I want to be a good neighbor because I want to create opportunities to connect my story to my neighbor's story to God's story. That's a great ultimate motive. So how do we convince our neighbors that our motives are not ulterior? So that they aren't just waiting and this happens especially when, when they find out you're a pastor and they live next door. So they're not just waiting, when's he going to drop the other shoe? When's he going to make the big push? When's he going to trick me into his living room? When's he going to tell me that I'm going to hell? How do we do that? Well, The first thing we do is, as we've been saying, check my motives. 
But the other thing that we do is we trust that love cannot be veiled forever. Okay? So, great restaurants with great food and great service and great atmosphere, they don't need somebody at the door as everybody's leaving, asking them, so what'd you think? How'd you like it? Was it good? Uh, and, the, and people say, oh yeah, it was great. It's like, oh, could you just please tell all your friends about this? Could you please make a post on your Facebook about this? Great restaurants don't have to do that because they trust that the thing that they have is so good, people will naturally talk about it. So the reason why neighboring is not an evangelism project or a scheme or a, a tract is that we believe that if you get into real relationship with your neighbors, eventually the true Jesus will come out in the way that you talk about him. It will eventually come out. Who knows how long it will take. But it will just come out because you can't help but share about the experience which matters most to you. Your relationship with Jesus. Now I think the main reason why so few people are actually engaged in evangelism is not because there's not a perfect program or the right messaging or the right tract. I think the reason is threefold. It's either that people don't love Jesus and other people can tell that and they're like, I'm not going to that restaurant. You did not sell me at all. That doesn't sound good. Or, number two, people don't care about other people enough to allow their love for Jesus to come out, to share with them the greatest news about their sins being forgiven, about Jesus rising from the dead, about this hope of eternal life with Him. Or three, people just don't know any non-Christians. And so when their love is pure for Jesus and their love for others is pure and right, they just have no avenues with which to share. Naturally. It's coming out all the time, but there's no one around that doesn't already know. I think those are the three main reasons. I think neighboring fixes most of those. Neighboring fixes the problem of not knowing anybody that's not a Christian. I think when you get to know your neighbor, neighbors well, you'll really get to love them and like them and care about them. And I think you'll come to see when you get into real relationships with people that don't know Jesus, just how great Jesus is. Just how amazing it is that he loves you and died for you. And I think your love for Jesus will grow because you'll see just how much it's actually changed you. One final helpful tip. How do we make sure our motives are right? How do we make sure our neighbors don't stay out of relationship with us because they're always waiting for that ulterior motive to show itself? One, maybe the most helpful tip is this. Learn to receive. If all you ever do with your neighbors or with your friends is give, 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 they will always expect that at some moment you're going to ask for that back. And if you're religious, they're going to think it's coming in the form of accepting Jesus or coming to church. So here's what you do. You learn to receive. And this is super hard for Christians. You learn to go ask for help from a neighbor 
Maybe your neighbor's a plumber. You ask them, could you come help me? I know it's a big inconvenience, but I don't know what I'm doing. And I'd rather not flood my basement. Would you help me fix my toilet? You learn to receive. They ask, hey, is there anything that, that we can do for you? Thank you so much for watching my cat. Is there anything we, we can do for you? Don't say no. If there's something, say yeah. Now don't make it up. Don't pretend. And if you do pretend, hide your magnet for sure. You know, like, don't pretend. But if you have something, ask. It is not, there's nothing wrong with receiving. That's part of how real relationship happens. You give and you receive. Learn to receive, and they'll learn to realize that you're not in it for some ulterior motive, but you're in it for real relationship. So, how is your map? Is it going well? Did you learn anybody's name this week? For no ulterior motive, but that people's names matter. How are your motives? Can you love people just because they're worth being loved? And next week we'll look at fear, time, expectation, and some of the barriers that keep us, even when our motives are good, from actually going and being good neighbors. Would you pray with me? Father God, we thank you for this opportunity to come together on Father's Day and celebrate all the dads in our lives to celebrate our Heavenly Father who sent His Son Jesus to die for us, who's taken upon Himself the weight of sin and then rose from the grave to prove that it is finished, that the ultimate act of love worked and that life is found on the other side. I pray for us as we learn to neighbor well that our motives would be as pure as possible that we would not be so hard on ourselves or others who, who seem to maybe not have full awareness of motives or, or in the past have maybe done things for mixed motives. God, you can work through all of that. You, you don't need perfect vessels to take your gospel to the ends of the earth. That's obvious because you chose us to be your messengers. So don't let this motives question keep us from mission, from loving our neighbors, from sharing the gospel, but just help us, help, help it to help us maybe do it more like Jesus would do it. With a little bit more love and a little less ulterior motive. We pray all this in Jesus' name.